Welcome to Freed Up. This is the podcast that makes life feel lighter. And if you're wanting to live freed up and not fed up, stay connected right here. Pull up your seat. Join us in this place where faith and mental health meet. I'm your host, Tina Robertson, a licensed clinical social worker, a mental health therapist and trainer, but most of all, I'm walking this road with you as we all seek to live freed up and not fed up. Whether you're returning here or it's your first time listening to the podcast, I hope you find this as a useful resource to elevate your faith and mental health. So stay a while, all of you. Let's get it started in just a moment. I want to take some time over the next few episodes to unpack and dig a bit deeper into each of the attachment patterns or styles that Dr. Rose and I talked about in the last two episodes. We really only had time to highlight each of these attachment styles and share the clinical research support behind them. And then we also discussed the spiritual implications of how insecure attachments that occur early on in life and continue into our adulthood and relationships, how those can adversely affect our ability to trust and grow in our relationship with God. I want to encourage those of you who haven't heard these episodes to definitely take a listen in because they're going to be so helpful in providing a foundation to the content we'll cover over the next few weeks. So today I'm going to share more about one of the insecure attachment styles that we call anxious attachment pattern. Sometimes it's referred to as ambivalent. Now, in its adult feature, we call it preoccupied pattern. But before I get started, I want to remind you of a few key points to keep in mind as we push forward today on this topic. First, our attachment styles are not life sentences. With awareness and with practicing new learnings and strategies, we can shift the unhealthy patterns. Now, these patterns developed as a response to early life interactions with our primary caregivers in particular, but also they happen with other adults who had extended access to us in our childhood development. So think teachers, think other relatives, think maybe people at the church who you interacted with on a consistent basis. Now, secondly, we don't talk about attachment patterns to blame those who raised us. I want you to hear this clearly. We don't want to blame those who raised us or those with whom we spent significant amount of time. Blaming gets us nowhere and attachment patterns are often generational patterns. So they didn't just start with your caregivers or your parents or those who had significant connections with you. We talk about these patterns so that we can understand more about ourselves and take steps that are needed to our healing and move closer to our goal of getting freed up. So let's get into what this anxious attachment looks like and how it shows up as preoccupied in our adult relational interactions. First, let's talk about what a secure attachment is, because then we'll have something as a comparison. So when a child has a need 
and their caregiver attunes to that need. Remember, Dr. Rose talked about that word attunes. That means to zero in and observe and connect to the need. So when a child has a need and their caregiver attunes to that need and meets that need in a fairly consistent manner, that child learns that he or she is safe, is seen, and will be soothed by their caretaker in times of distress or just for bonding in general. They can form a secure attachment to that parent or caregiver. So we call that having a secure home base. On the other hand, when a parent is connecting and attuned sometimes, but is unattentive, insensitive, or intrusive at other times, an anxious and ambivalent attachment pattern is in the making. This child might feel like they have to cling to their parent to get their needs met. They may feel really dysregulated when their parent leaves and may be harder to soothe and settle when they reunite with that caregiver. Sometimes this pattern occurs when a child is the target of the parent needing their emotional needs met instead of giving the child a nurturing kind of love. Now, Dr. Lisa Firestone, who is a psychologist, she's done extensive research in this area, and she describes this as emotional hunger on the part of the caregiver. So when a caregiver or parent is emotionally hungry, they may look to the child to meet their emotional needs. The child will be available because they want the affection of their parent or caregiver. But when the child needs affection or love, the caregiver may be preoccupied or misattuned to that child's desire or need for closeness and connection. And when they give to their child, they may do so in a way that is about themselves and not their child. So this could look like a caregiver or parent putting their child in a particular sport because they never got to participate in that particular sport themselves. So it becomes more about their need than their child's need. Or another example could be a parent having their children's friends over because they want the friends to see them as the cool parent rather than tuning into their child's needs of having a positive experience with their friends when they're over. It's at these times that caregivers can get distracted by their own insecurities and needs, and they may disregard the needs of their own kids. But again, at other times, the caregiver is emotionally attuned to the child. But the inconsistency, that's the key word, the inconsistency creates anxiety and confusion for the child, thus the terms anxious and ambivalent. And so then the child may start to believe that they have to do certain things to be seen and noticed by their caregiver in times where the attunement is misaligned or is missing altogether. A parent or caregiver who fosters an anxious attachment with their child very likely experienced this style of attachment themselves as a child. They had their own emotional needs that weren't consistently met, which left them feeling empty. And when they became parents, they might have looked to their child or their children to fill their emotional emptiness. And this is how generational patterns develop. And so then when someone has experienced this anxious, ambivalent attachment as a child, this can cause an attachment wound that may go on to form a preoccupied attachment to their partner in an adult romantic relationship. And even sometimes it'll show up in close friendships. 
so when someone gets used to inconsistency in their needs being met, they may show up in relationships feeling much more insecure and needing continued reassurance and validation. They might have trouble trusting their partner's words of love and affection because they don't believe it's going to be sustained. Trusting is very hard for someone who has experienced this particular attachment wound. So they may ask for or seek out signs that their partner is not going to leave them and they can become anxious and clingy in hopes of staying connected to their partner so they can feel more secure in the relationship. And then as a result, even as they believe that they're seeking closeness in a sense of safety by clinging to their partner, their actions are actually pushing their partner away. And because of the deep-seated insecurity from their past experiences that came from this misattuned inconsistency from childhood and from other relationships that they've had across their lifespan, preoccupied people can behave in ways that seem desperate or overly needy, insecure, demanding, possessive, jealous, or controlling behaviors toward their partner. They often misinterpret their partner's actions or their moods as being rejecting or insensitive. Also, an anxiously attached person might have a tendency to overdo for their partner just as their parents overdid for them in an attempt to make them love them. So this is interesting. While it may seem that an anxiously or preoccupied attached person would seek out somebody who is nurturing and available, oftentimes they wind up being drawn to a person who has an avoidant attachment style, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. But generally speaking, avoidance styles have trouble meeting others' emotional needs. And this connection and attraction to that attachment style is often a reenactment of their childhood experience. Now, remember, with all of that said, people with anxious, ambivalent, preoccupied styles can make changes that allow them to feel less anxious and more emotionally self-sufficient. And this moves them toward a more secure attachment. And yes, it is possible. This person can have a successful relationship with anyone, and in particular with someone who has an avoidant attachment style. So no worries if you're with someone or you have friends that may fall into an avoidant attachment style and you have an anxious, ambivalent, preoccupied style. We can all coexist together. So what has to happen is both individuals have to understand and learn their attachment pattern and acknowledge the wounds that have resulted from that. Then they can do their own individual work and healing and move toward each other in healthier and relationally sustainable ways. I love this because this is a demonstration of God's grace in action. So how does an anxiously ambivalent, preoccupied, attached person do this? Well, I want to share just a few strategies with you, and I want to remind you, I share with you that this is an attachment pattern that I can identify with. So if this is you, you are not alone. There is research that talks about at least 35% of people have this attachment style. So let's talk healing and shifting, okay? So the first thing that has to happen, if you feel like this might be an attachment style you can identify with, is 
practice self-compassion. See, these behaviors didn't develop overnight. They are embedded into the wiring of our brains and bodies. So the blessing is this. God is in the healing business. And so he has designed our neurobiology with the capacity to make changes that can stick. And he gives us his spirit to put the power behind our efforts. So be kind to yourself as you work to make changes. Your process is not going to be a straight line. Know that up front. So expect that you're going to zigzag a bit on this journey of unlearning and relearning. It comes with the territory. So practice self-compassion. The second thing is we got to recognize the thoughts and actions associated with this pattern. So notice, pay attention to when you might be feeling insecure consistently in a friendship or a romantic relationship, or if you're consistently in anxious mode, maybe even jealous or needing to know every move so you can feel more in control of your friends or your partners. These actions are actually fear-based, but they developed as a protective defense by you because you felt unsafe in your earliest relational interactions. And trust is harder when inconsistency has been what you've known and what you expect. So practice self-reflection and pay attention to what you do in response to what someone else does. And remember, this is about you, not them, not the other person. They are not responsible for your actions or your reactions. You are. I'm responsible for my actions and reactions. So free others from that burden and focus on what you need to do in your growth. So the third strategy is learn to self-soothe. This is so important. Learn to self-soothe. We just talked about needing to identify when you feel nervous, anxious, preoccupied, if you're ruminating, if you feel threatened, and see where it is in your body that you feel it. That's what you do when you start to practice self-reflection and mindfulness and pay attention to what you're feeling and where you're feeling it. When you notice it, let yourself feel it and feel through it and then breathe through it or tap through it or use another strategy that for yourself that calms you down. When we say feel through it, let me explain what that means. So many times We feel something in our bodies that doesn't feel safe. It may even feel painful. And what do we first do? We want to stop it so that it doesn't hurt us. We want to stop it so we don't feel badly. But we have to feel through the uncomfortability, feel through the pain so we can get to the other side of it. That's self-soothing. When you don't feel good about something in the moment, when your body is reacting and responding in a way that makes you feel unsafe, even scared or fearful. You feel through it by letting it be, acknowledging that it's there, and then learning how to calm yourself down. You have to retrain the nervous system because that is where a lot of the energy is coming from and it's making your brain feel like you're not safe. So practice staying in your body, as we call it, controlling your impulses to do something in the moment that you might regret later. 
So you can calm yourself and ground yourself by saying, I'm safe right now. I can soothe myself. I can regulate myself. You can also pray through it. You can also speak any encouragement of scripture through it. Listen, God has got you while you're on this path. Here's another important point. You don't always need what you think you need at that moment from someone else. You can give to yourself in those moments the attention that you are craving or seeking from someone else. Sometimes these feelings come up because of the inconsistency and moving away of someone else, and we are reenacting that need in these moments. So listen, self-soothing isn't intended, though, to minimize our desires and needs for others to love us or show us affection and attention. That is a natural human need that will not go away. But this attachment wound is often on overdrive when it comes to wanting to connect with someone else. So you have to relearn that no one can fill that hole of affection that you wanted as a child. And when you begin to soothe yourself, you will see that you'll retrain your nervous system to become less dependent on someone else to meet your emotional hunger. Now, A bit of a disclaimer as we close out. This process is going to be uncomfortable. It may feel downright unbearable at times, like it does when any wound is healing. But trust me, with prayer and consistent practice of these three strategies, you will soon see changes. I'm a witness. Pruning hurts and plucking up ain't easy. But the new blooms are everything, friend, everything. If you need assistance in this area, definitely connect with the therapist who has knowledge and experience in attachment-based relational therapy. And don't forget, you got this because God's got you. And I'm right here with you on this one. So I'm sending you lots of love and much prayer as you practice these three strategies. Wow. Okay. A lot to take in. So how you doing out there? Y'all good? I know this can be a lot, but think about the fact that this is part of your seeds and my seeds in investing, investing in the things that God cares about the most, relationships. And as we make these changes and begin to heal, we are investing in our relationship with him and with others. So I celebrate you today, even now, for the work that you're doing and the work that you'll continue to do. And remember, you do not walk this path alone. I am walking right alongside you, along with the rest of the Freed Up friends. And don't you forget, God loves you. I love you. And make sure you take care of you.